Thank you. And um, we welcome Margaret Jude, who's leading our service this morning. Thank you. Well, good morning to you all. Lovely to see you all again this morning. It's a little while since I've been to see you. For anybody here who doesn't know me, uh, I'm Margaret Jude, as John has said. I come from Histon Baptist Church uh, and bring greetings from Histon Baptist Church to you all this morning. Lovely to see you. Now, just in case you hadn't noticed, we've had Valentine's Day this week. Did you send any Valentine cards? No, no, but did anybody have a Valentine's card? Yes, Emma, wonderful. <laughs> I say just in case you hadn't noticed, because haven't we been bombarded with red roses, pink hearts, balloons, bubbly, chocolate and poetry, and boyfriend sending girlfriend a card, proclaiming his undying love forever. We've come here this morning to talk and to think about a greater love, the love of God for every one of us. I don't know when was the last time you stood on top of a cliff and looked out at the sea and marveled at how huge the ocean is. Well, we're going to start off by standing and singing, Here is love vast as the ocean. Uh, The reading is taken from uh, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you, John. So here we are, just a few days after Valentine's Day, when, as I said earlier, we've been bombarded from the shops and on our televisions with so much paraphernalia that goes with it. Uh, All very good, too, actually, that we should celebrate our love for each other. Love is such an overused word in our vocabulary. We talk about loving our partners, our husbands or wives, and we love ice cream. And we talk about using, we use the same word to talk about loving God. Our English language is so rich uh, and so diverse, and yet we only have this one word to describe a whole raft of emotions, a whole spectrum of emotions. And so we need to look a lot more closely at what Jesus was actually saying in this Bible passage when he talks about loving our enemies. He's not talking about a soppy, romantic feeling 
uh, the slush and gush, if you like. <laughs> He's talking about a hard-edged, tough love, agape love, God's sort of love that desires the best for the other person. He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love those who hurt you and attack you and do all sorts of harm to you. He's not just talking about ISIS or the foreign powers or nations that might rise up and attack us. He's talking about ordinary, everyday people in our lives with whom we are in conflict. And let's face it, we're all in conflict with somebody at some point in our lives, some kind of argument that might be going on. Now, is it possible to really love the person that's hurt us? How do we love our enemy? Well, we're going to look first of all at three possible answers to that question. First, by developing and maintaining the capacity to forgive. Remember that when you've been hurt, you, the victim, the one who has suffered the wrong, are the only person who can forgive. It's in your hands to do that. It doesn't mean that you ignore the offence. You don't put an arm around their shoulder and say, there, there, dear, it doesn't matter. It's only that the offence is no longer a barrier to the relationship. What they've done does matter. And sometimes the offence will hurt until the day you die. But are you, because of that offence, going to let it to continue to be a barrier, stunting your growth, your own development, or are you going to find a way of putting it aside? Not ignoring it, but putting it aside for the sake of the relationship that might be restored. Forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. We've all heard the old phrase, haven't we? Forgive and forget. It doesn't mean forgetting. It's just that you don't remember to insist on getting your own back. Remember the words of Jesus himself from the cross as they hammered the nails into his hands when he said, Father, forgive, for they don't know what they're doing. I can't believe that he ignored the offence or that he forgot it. But that act of unbelievable forgiveness made possible the renewal of a relationship between man and God that might otherwise have been broken forever. As Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not holding their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In other words, he says to us, go and do likewise. Do not hold the offence against our enemies. Forgive and be reconciled in our relationships. That is the message that Jesus wants us to preach and to live. Secondly, we need to remember that there is always more to our enemy than the hateful deed that he or she has done. Is evil to win every battle? Are human beings never be it to be allowed to break out of the wrong deeds that they've done? Are we to be imprisoned by the hateful deeds that we've done? 
are we not more? Are there not more attributes to us? Do we not have other attributes? Are we forever coloured and conditioned by the vile deeds that we're now ashamed of? By the way, is there a hint in here about forgiving ourselves, which is often so very hard to do? You see, it is in our human nature just to see the one bad thing in the person that's hurt us. It's the first thing that we see when we see that person, when we meet them. And we find it so difficult to see any good in them or to separate the wrong deed from the person. If I can just illustrate this to you. Anybody know what that is? Anybody hazard a guess? What is it? No? No offers? Please, somebody. (laughs) No. Nobody's going to say. Not even that it's a black blob. (laughs) What it actually is, is a lovely, clean, white sheet of paper just happens to have that in the middle of it. That's what you were all looking at, weren't you? That was what you saw. That was what you thought I was asking you. Look how much white paper there is compared with the black blob. If you look closely, there is even white within the black. It's not all black. That's how we tend to look at people. We see the one bad thing that's there and we forget there is so much more to the person than just that one bad thing that they've done. Thank God that when he looks at us, he doesn't see that at all. What he sees is that. Jesus in front of us. Jesus in all his righteousness and his purity in front of that big black blob. And Jesus, look, God looks at that and forgives us. It's what we sang a moment ago. He looks on the sacrifice of Jesus and the purity of Jesus and is content to pardon me and to forgive. He calls us to do the same. We need to just look for the other things in people. We need to remember that there is more to our enemy than the hateful deed that he or she has done. Jesus calls us to have a wider view and to put aside personal feelings. We need to look for the good in everyone and to see the image of God in everyone, however deeply it might be hidden. Thirdly, never seek to defeat or humiliate an enemy but to win back his or her friendship and understanding. That's how we love our enemy. This teaching was absolutely central to the methodology of Martin Luther King. Even 300 years of oppression and unjust treatment to the black people could not justify, in his eyes, a retaliation based on overthrowing and humiliating the enemy, the white man. The ultimate aim of the freedom marches, the demonstrations, the stirring speeches had always to be the restoration of or the discovery of friendship between black people and white people. 
We all remember his great speech in Washington when he spoke about the dream that he had that one day little black children and little white children would play together and live together in peace and in harmony. It angered black people who wanted humiliation for the enemy and to overthrow the enemy as they saw them. It angered many white people as well. And Martin Luther King paid with his life in 1968. But his whole aim had never been to seek to defeat or humiliate his enemies, but, uh, but to be reconciled in love, just as Jesus taught. And both of them paid with their lives because it is a message that the world doesn't want to hear because it is within our human nature to want to re retaliate and to put down the other person who has hurt us. None of us like to be made to look or to feel stupid. To be humiliated, especially in front of other people, hurts deeply. Love never seeks to defeat or humiliate, but to win back the friendship. And that requires tough love. So how do I love my enemy? By always maintaining the capacity to forgive, to remember that there is always more to the enemy than the one hateful thing that he or she has done, and never to seek to defeat or humiliate an enemy, but to win back their friendship and their understanding. But there's a second question lurking underneath all of this. Why should I love my enemy? If you are parents, haven't you heard this from your children? Why should I? <laughs> when they're told to do something, why should I? And it's that, that's the question that's nagging away in our hearts. Why should we love our enemies? Do you know somebody said to me once, somebody in my own family said, there's enough good people in the world that I can be friendly with. Why should I bother with the bad ones? Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Now here's why. Let's look at three answers to that one. First of all, because returning hatred for hatred simply intensifies hatred, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Can I just let you look at that one on the screen and take that in? Hatred, returning hatred for hatred, intensifies hatred adding a deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. As we've seen in this last week in the Yemen, thank you, Pat, for praying for the Yemen, there was that bombing at the funeral, followed by a massive retaliation against ISIS, killing far more people than were killed at the funeral. Toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he is almost saying, in a world that seems bent on committing suicide, love them or else. The chain of evil Hate begetting more hate, wars begetting more wars, must be broken, or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. 
Looking at it another way, Theresa May has been tasked with the business of leading us out of the EU with a good deal for the UK. And most businesses, in particular, are watching her with bated breath. Haven't we seen it on our television screens? Because they have a vested interest in getting a good deal for the UK, one which is in the best interests of their business. Well, our vested interest in deciding why we should love our enemies is that we should not be annihilated. And unless somebody breaks the never-ending vicious circle of hatred and violence and evil, then annihilation is the end product as sure as today is Sunday. This leads very strongly into our second point. Secondly, because hatred scars the soul and distorts the personality. It's not just a case of harm done to the victim. It's the victim who feels bad about what's been done, who can be scarred and whose life can be marred by holding on tightly to the bitterness and the resentment, hatred against the enemy who has hurt them. Great and abiding harm can result for the person who has caused the hurt in the first place and the person carrying the bitterness. Doing harm to anyone, even enemies, destroys a person's sense of values and objectivity. We've all heard stories of people being so consumed with anger and bitterness towards someone else for a crime that they've committed that their whole lives have been totally driven by the desire for revenge until another crime is committed and more lives blighted. This is what has happened to the people of so-called ISIS who are so bitter against society and against the West in particular and have committed so many atrocities that they have become killing machines, devoid of feelings and devoid of mercy. And so you see, if I don't love my enemy, it's me that will bear the marks and the disfigurement of the hatred and the bitterness that consumes me because I can't love my enemy. So in my own self-interest, I need to find a way to love my enemy, otherwise I'm consenting to walk into a prison cell from a psychological point of view, locked in by bitterness. Thirdly, because love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. In Parliament Square, there's a statue of Abraham Lincoln. It's there in the heart of the British parliamentary and our political scene. It's appropriately there because Abraham Lincoln doesn't belong just to America. As a contemporary of his said after his death, Abraham Lincoln was the greatest man who ever lived and now he belongs to the ages. Now that was said by Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State for War, a key member of his government. He was the same man called Stanton, who had vilified Lincoln in the campaign with personal smears and ugly innuendo, just as we've seen all over again in the recent uh, election campaign in America. And it's probably been the bitterest and ugliest election campaign that we've ever seen. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton 
absolutely slandered each other in that campaign, throwing everything they possibly could at each other with vicious personal attacks. Stanton had indulged in all of those tactics against Abraham Lincoln. And yet, when Lincoln became president, he appointed Stanton to be Secretary of State against the advice of many of his closest advisors. Why? Because he was the best man for the job. Such was the nature of the love and the forgiveness of Abraham Lincoln. And it caused Stanton eventually to utter such words of praise for the very man that he had vilified. Something has to be capable, capable of turning enemies into friends. <coughs> Excuse me. Or at least collaborators. It's not just a question of liking other people, but being able to work in harmony with them and having respect for each other. Love is the only force capable of doing that. Fourthly and finally, why should I love my enemies? Because it is the only way of being the children of our Father in heaven. That is, the only way of fulfilling our destiny, the only way of becoming what we were meant to be. Not an eye for an eye, not a tooth for a tooth, not retaliation, not retribution, not restitution, not tit for tat, but pleasing God, pure flowing love in action. That's what we've been on the receiving end of. That's at the heart of the Christian dispensation of grace. Despite the fact that we could never merit it, we are on the receiving end of grace by the bucketful. We who have received so bountifully from God, we who have been loved into action, given an intimation of who we are, whose we are, why we're here, where we're going, we who are on re in receipt of all this, we are in turn to put a bit of that back into the kind of relationships and life that we live. Surely that's not unreasonable. Seems very logical when we look at it like that. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. So that by following the example of Jesus, we may be, become fully what he intended us to be. Why should we love our enemy? Because returning hatred for hatred only intensifies hatred. Because hatred scars the soul and distorts the personality. Because love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. And because it is the only way of being the children of our Father in heaven. Now those are the answers that I wanted to look at this morning. But at this point I have to say to you that this is not my sermon at all. <laughs> it's a sermon preached by Martin Luther King. I've updated it and personalized it with my own examples here and there, put it in my own words, but basically the bare bones of it are Martin's message. And when I first heard this sermon preached by another minister in a church in Cambridge, like him, I was so moved by it that I felt that that sermon should not die with Martin Luther King. 
He, of all people, showed those very capabilities and capacities which he himself had described. And this is the good bit. He discovered that it is possible to live this teaching of Jesus. See, I don't know if you're sitting in in your pew thinking, well, that's all very well, but you don't know my enemies. You don't know how badly I've been hurt in the past. Or... It was so long ago and I didn't deal with it that way then and it's too late now. It's never too late. It's never too difficult. We can love our enemies and this is how. Very soon we will be entering into Lent. I've heard about your Lent courses this morning. We will be going into Lent and leading up to the events of Holy Week. When the focus is on the one greatest man of any age our supreme example who loved his enemies and lived as he had taught, who died as he had lived, and who showed the capacity of life and love to transcend and to shatter the power of death and hatred. In Christ, we have seen that raw energy released beneficially into the world to you and to me. I wonder if any of you saw the Mel Gibson film, The Passion of Christ, quite some years ago now. When I saw it, I was shocked beyond words to see the reality of the suffering that Jesus endured. One of the most abiding images left in my mind was at the end of the horrific flogging, when his flesh was torn to ribbons all over and the force of the flogging had repeatedly knocked him off his feet. He lay there, where he had been unfastened from the clamps and flung to the ground, and was then dragged off across the sharp cobbled stones like a raw lump of meat. And then on top of that, there was the crown of thorns, and the journey to Calvary being kicked and beaten all the way, carrying the cross, And then after that, the actual crucifixion. And he could still say, Father, forgive all this for me, just so that I can be forgiven and restored to God. What love is this? But of course, we know the glorious news is that he rose from the dead. He is alive, no longer shredded by the inhumanity of man to man. He is alive powerfully alive in us today. And it is the reality of his resurrection power that transmits to us the same capacity to love the unlovable and to do the impossible. Not only did he give us this teaching, not only did he give us a shining example of how to live that teaching, but he also gives us the power to love our enemies as he did. Such love as his demands a response of our whole lives to the following of his teaching. And he can give you and me a fresh start today. Remember that nothing that you have suffered or ever will suffer comes even close to his suffering. Jesus never asks us to do anything that he hasn't or wasn't prepared to do himself. Love your enemies? He loved his enemies. 
Pray for those who persecute you. He prayed for them. Bless those who persecute you. Yes, he did that as well. So the Jesus between whose words and deeds there is no difference is the same Jesus whose beauty, integrity, and authenticity continue to inspire my whole life, my vision, and my desire to preach. And it's his love and power that I commend to you today. May it consume your soul. May it heal your wounds. May it transform your life with a fresh start today. May it remind you in whose image you have been made and why you have been put here on this earth. Amen. May we be strong to grasp with all God's people what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ and to know it though it is beyond knowledge. So may we attain to the fullness of being, the fullness of God himself as he intended us to be. Amen.